can take your seats. <clears throat> Since it is uh, the day after Christmas, Merry Christmas, uh, we have been uh, doing uh, this fall a series on the Sermon on the Mount, but I thought we would take a break from that today just to spend just a few moments uh, in a verse that's probably the most famous verse in the Bible, especially if you're a sports fan. Uh, you... Uh, you see those guys holding up John 3.16 behind home plate or behind the bench or behind uh, coaches and that sort of thing. So um, maybe you don't, you've, you've always wondered, what is John 3.16? Well, uh, it's a verse in the Bible, and uh, we're going to look at it uh, this morning because it seems an appropriate verse to talk about uh, today. So we'll start back on uh, the Sermon on the Mount next week. But before I read the text, let me pray. And we'll uh, jump in this morning. Lord, we uh, rejoice today that uh, you have come. We rejoice uh, that our rest, our hope, our life is found in you. And uh, you, um, uh, we can say that because uh, you're coming, you're taking on flesh, uh, you're becoming one of us um, is the evidence of that. So help us today uh, to be warmed, uh, to be renewed, uh, and to re-remember uh, the truth of the good news that you came, you walked among us, you died our death, you rose again, and yet you are coming once more. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So John 3.16, a text is in the bulletin also up on the screens behind me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So one of the things that uh, is important for us to understand about this verse, we, you know, it's a verse that gets plucked out all the time and used. It is that this, Jesus says these words in the context of an encounter with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a religious leader in first century uh, Israel, and he comes to Jesus to ask him some questions, to find out what Jesus is about, to find out what his message is about and, and what he uh, has to say. And so Jesus uh, has this discussion with him, and they talk about some things from the Old Testament. They talk about the necessity of being born again, and that makes no sense at all to Nicodemus. He can't understand how that can be. And in this, uh, in, in this encounter, Jesus says these remarkable words uh, to Nicodemus. And so he says them to us today. And it seems a very appropriate verse for us to look at uh, because the thing that we recognize about Christmas, the thing that we celebrate today, is the giving of Jesus Christ for us. That the baby born there in the manger uh, begins his earthly walk towards a cross and an empty tomb. And so as we think about that this morning and as we unpack just a little bit, just for a few moments, what that means, it is good for us to kind of settle our hearts again today about uh, what, uh, what Christmas is all about, uh, what uh, the songs that we've sung, the celebrations that we've had, what they all uh, ultimately are about. So we're just going to walk through the text uh, very quickly, very briefly this morning, just to, uh, to kind of uh, to wrap our brains uh, about this a little bit. So uh, the first thing to note about this text is the facts. And the fact is 
that Jesus begins this text by saying that God, for God, so loved the world. Now, one of the things that would be important for us to get right off the bat that we might just pass over when we read this text is that there's a God. That he made us, that we are not our own, uh, that we belong to him. Uh, and that at the, at the very foundation and the very basis of how we understand, how Christians understand what human life is about, what uh, life on this planet is all about, begins and ends with the recognition uh, that we're not our own, but belong to this God who made us and that we are, uh, that we're His. And so that's, that's a great place for us uh, to begin today as we, as we think about this. And it is such good news for us in a world that seems often out of control and often uh, just crazy as can be to rest our souls in the fact that this world belongs to the God who made it, that he sovereignly rules it, and that he orders the affairs of men and the events of history for his glory and for our good. We rest our hearts and souls first and foremost in that thought that there is a God who is at work in this, and that there's a God who is at work even not only in the work of creation, but more particularly as we see in this verse, the work of redemption for us, right? But it's not just that there's a God who stands apart from us, who winds the world up and lets it go, or a God who stands apart from us and shouts at all of us to do better, who nags us, who is uh, secretly disappointed, who holds us at arm's length, right? One of the things that my adult children say to me often is, Dad, I could tell you were, uh, you really disapproved and you were disappointed. And I'm like, how in the world can you tell that? I didn't say a word. And they're like, you didn't have to. You just looked at us. So I'm like, so, so you want me to look away? What, what? You want me to look down? You want me to go, nah, 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 nah. What, what is it that you want me to do, right? And so we, we, we always have these kind of discussions in our human relationships, right, that no matter what, no matter what's going on with us, we have to have this sense of, do you really love me? Are you really for me? Are you, do you really love me even when you see me failing? Do you love me when you see me struggling? Do you love me when I tell you, uh, that I reject you, right? And so that's exactly what Jesus is getting at in this text. And this is the, the whole context that, that he is speaking to, to him about this, is that this God gives and he loves. And so the, the fact of the matter is we, we can't think about God in any other way. We shouldn't think about him as his people in any other way uh, except first and foremost that this God loves his people and that the evidence of his love for, uh, for us is the gift of his son. Whatever else may be happening in the world, whatever may be, else may be happening in your world, in your body, in your mind, in your heart, that is true. And it always remains true, and it is objectively true. It is a great thing even to come to worship if you're confused or angry or bitter or sad or just undone, because the things that we talk about, the things that we sing, the things that we read, the things that we pray, the God that we worship stands objectively true in all of that. 
and it remains objectively true, uh, and it is a great thing for us, even as we come with our struggles and our brokenness, to say, you know what, this is hard for me, but praise God, He is love, and He is at work, and that He, he, he gives and He pursues. One of the things, one of the misunderstandings often that we have about God is that He simply takes from us, right? But what Jesus wants to make clear in this text, and what Christmas makes clear to us, is that at the very heart of God is this love demonstrated to us in his gift of Jesus Christ. And he says here that he comes to rescue, so that we would not perish, so that we would not die in our sin, so that we would not live in an unreconciled way with our, with our Creator and our Heavenly Father. Jesus comes all the way to us to demonstrate not just the love of God to us, but to pursue us in love. One of the things that's been true of human beings since uh, our first sin in the garden is, is not only have we aligned ourselves with God's enemy, that's what Adam and Eve did when they sinned, they aligned themselves with the serpent, but we've run from God. We've hidden from God. And what does God do? He pursues. We read this uh, in the, uh, the Belgic Confession where he says this. Next slide, Scott. We believe that our good God, by marvelous divine wisdom and goodness, seeing that Adam and Eve had plunged themselves in this manner into both physical and spiritual death and made themselves completely miserable. You know you're miserable when you're hiding in the bushes, sewing together fig leaves to cover up your nakedness. Not, not a happy day, right? <laughs> not... Not a, joyful, not, a, not, not a joyful thing to be doing. And God set out to find them, though they, trembling all over, were fleeing from God. And God comforted them. God comforts his creatures who have just aligned themselves with death. God comes to Adam and Eve and certainly curses the ground. And certainly he curses the, the serpent. And certainly he curses the, the, the whole process of raising children in pain and difficulty, but he promises a redeemer. He promises victory, and he promises ultimate restoration and reconciliation in Jesus. He comforted them, promising to give them his son, born of a woman, to crush the head of the serpent and to make them blessed. One of the ways that we know that God loves us is that he does not stand apart from us but that he pursues us. I, it's, it's not unusual for me to have a conversation around here with, with, uh, with women who come to me and say, hey, I'm dating this boy. And he's not very good looking. He's kind of goofy. Uh, don't really know what to think, but I have to say he keeps showing up. <laughs> and he keeps being kind. And he keeps caring for me, and he keeps pursuing me. What am I supposed to do? Well, maybe get caught. I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe, that's, maybe, that's a, maybe that's a good option. And, and maybe, maybe he'll get better looking to you. <laughs> maybe, maybe, right? So, so the fact is, what we recognize about this is, is that God's not just standing apart. He's not just 
speaking words of condemnation or speaking words of correction or speaking those sorts of things. He's actually coming to them. Yes, there are consequences to their sin, but the consequence of the sin and that their death, their suffering, their separation from God will not stand. That he promises a redeemer and that this redeemer will come as seed of the woman and crush the serpent's head. So one of the things that we see about this is is that that God's uh, uh, care, God's mercy, His grace, His love even extends to that which, left to its own devices, would remain alienated from Him. Next next slide. My friend John Calvin, who uh, says says this about this text, which I think is, is, is really, really wonderful. For God so loved the world, Christ reveals the first cause, and as it were, were the source of our salvation in a way that leaves no room for uncertainty. For our minds cannot find rest until we embrace God's unmerited love. I would submit to you today that if your mind cannot find rest, if you cannot find peace, if you cannot settle your soul this morning, Perhaps the reason for that is that you have not embraced God's unmerited love. That's hard for sinners to do, isn't it, right? Just as the entire basis of our salvation must not be looked for anywhere other than in Christ, so we must see where Christ came from and why he was offered to be our Savior. Both these points are distinctly stated here. For faith in Christ brings life to everyone. And Christ brought life because the Heavenly Father loves the human race and wishes that they should not perish. You see, that's the wonder that we see here, and that's the, that's the great thing. When, God, when Jesus says that God loves the world, he's not saying so much that God loves a lot of people, even though they're, they're, that's certainly the case. He doesn't mean that he's just generally uh, in love across uh, you know, just a whole bunch of people. When, when John uses the word world here, when Jesus uses the word world, he's not talking so much about the number of people, but the depth of sin. That the people that he's talking about just aren't just generally people, but they're people that are in rebellion against God. That they are people who left to their own devices would, like the prodigal and the older brother, shake their fist in their father's face. So what we, what we have here is this picture that the pursuing love of God takes enemies and makes them friends. Not only does he take enemies and make them friends, but he makes them dear children to sit at his table and to experience and to enjoy all the blessings that Jesus Christ entered this world. He lived, died, and rose again to give to us. And so the great thing that we have today is that the, this, the, the love of God is a pursuing love, and it is pursuing precisely the kind of people that you think you wouldn't pursue. It's precisely pursuing the people who have alienated themselves and are alienated from God by virtue of their sin. Next slide. But it's not just that God loves and holds us at a distance. It's not just that he's like, oh, you know, these people are rebelling against me, so I've got to do a little bit to win them back. No, he comes all the way to us 
to pursue us in love. And that, that's, a, that's a great thing for us. You know, one of the things that we, we, we have to kind of wrap our brains around is that when, when we speak here that God loved the world, it's not just, we throw the word love around like peanut butter. You know, we throw it around like it is just no big deal at all. But in this text, when we read that God loves us, the evidence of that love, the, the depth of that love is demonstrated to us in what he does. God loves you with an intensity. An intensity. Now, in some, in, in, when you hear that, God loves you with intensity, that on the one hand, that should make you really glad and, and, and give your soul rest. And it also should stir you up. It should warm you and it should make you come alive, make you wake up to the fact, <laughs> to the reality of what life is all about, right? Calvin goes on to say this, the word only begotten is emphatic to magnify the intensity of the love of God toward us. For as men and women, boys and girls, are not easily convinced that God loves them in order to remove all doubt. He has expressly stated that we are so very dear to God that on our account, he did not spare his only begotten son. That's stunning to come to grips with the fact that God's just not tolerating us or that he's just some, in some sort of righteous, legal, forensic bind to do something about it. When he pursues Adam and Eve in the garden, when he pursues us, he's doing it with an intensity, with a, a, a passion, because he cannot stand the thought that his world, his people, would perish. And so, instead, he gets in the way of that perishing. He stands in the place, our place, and takes upon himself that. You see, that, that's, that's the intensity that we have here. That the, the Father sees that and he gives to us that which is most precious to him so that we would experience the fullness of joy and life eternal, right? Now, one of the things that makes this text interesting to me uh, is the context that, that uh, uh, Jesus and Nicodemus are having. Nicodemus is a specialist in the Old Testament, and so they are having a discussion about the Old Testament, and one of the stories that they talk about right before John 3.16 is that great story in Numbers. Remember Numbers? I preached a series of sermons on that a long time ago. You probably don't remember it. You know, uh, the first four letters in Numbers are what? N-U-M-B. <laughs> right? That's a lot, you know. Uh, you probably don't remember it. You probably don't remember, uh, you know, I, I don't remember a whole lot about it, except it was very repetitive. Um, the people sinned, and God reacted and pursued and redeemed them. Well, in, in Numbers 21, we read the great text where the people have gotten tired of God's provision. They're tired of his manna. They're tired of uh, the food that he is giving them there in the wilderness. And, and the fact of the matter is, if God doesn't feed them, if God doesn't give them water, they're going to die. 
So he's giving them food, but they don't particularly like the food that God is giving them. So just before John 3.16, Jesus compares his own coming with what happened in the day of Moses when the people rebelled against God and said they were sick of manna. The result of the sin was, as you remember, a plague of serpents. How interesting. Serpents. All through the camp and people dying everywhere. So when Moses prayed for the people, Numbers 21.8 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. Now, this is one of the weirdest stories, frankly, in the Bible to me. I, it's just amazing that this is what God designed to do this. But God does this to get our attention so that, and, and, and to save the people, obviously, but also to preach the gospel to us, to preach the good news to us, right? So God's design of love to rescue the rebellious people from perishing was to lift up a serpent on a pole so that all the people had to do was look at it in faith and be saved. Now, here's the thing. The, the difference between you and I this morning and those people in the camp that were sick of manna is they knew when the snakes bit them. They knew they were snake bit. No doubt about it, right? They knew it. Uh, I've told this story before, but once uh, when I was a kid, it was our job in, in the evenings to run the cows up to the barn and to milk and to do the things that you do on a farm. And my brother and I were lollygagging along, running some cows across our little creek at, uh, at, uh, that ran through the middle of our farm. Uh, and I was in front of him. Um, and as I went across uh, the creek, a water moccasin struck at my boot and hit the heel of my boot and kind of bounced off of it. And I, um, being, I don't know, 10, 11 years old at the time, didn't, I felt something hit my shoe, but I didn't really think that much about it. And I turned around and my brother had a hoe in his hand and he just broke the hoe on, on the snake. He didn't bite anybody else. And so um, I, it was just stunning to me that a poisonous snake could get that close to me and I never see it completely unaware of it, and there it was. It, it, you know, thankfully, I had tough old boots on, and it didn't stink it, uh, sink its fangs into my heel. We're all snake bit. And we're all dying because of the bite of the serpent uh, that he brings to us, to every one of us, since our first parents sinned in the garden, right? Next slide. So when Jesus says in John 3, 14 and 15, as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life, right? God so loved the world that he gave. It means he gave his only and, uh, one and only begotten Son to a world of rebels, serpent-bitten, sinful, perishing, and him is their only hope. So God loves this world. That's what we celebrate today. It's not just that it's cute that a baby was born. It's not just cute that we have this great story about this couple coming to Bethlehem and her delivering this child. What we have is the pursuit of God, the gift of that which is most uh, precious to him of us.
God loves you. Now, one of the problems that we have with hearing that is that we're so transactional in the way in which we think about relationships that we think we're in a negotiation with God. <laughs> right? We think we're negotiating with him. Right? Uh, but the fact of the matter is, this is not a negotiation. <laughs> right? This is a, it, it, God's not, you know, you typically when we negotiate, the way I think about negotiating is we're going to talk about this and I'm going to make an offer so that, you know, you'll sell me what, you know, you're going to sell me and I'm going to get a lot and you're going to get a little. <laughs> right? And that what negotiating is? A successful negotiation thinks, you know, yes, you get something, but I get more. That's the way we tend to think about it, right? God's not negotiating when he tells you that he loves you. That's, that's, that's his offer. That's his bid. That demands our response. And our response simply is to take him at his word, to turn from our independence and our rebellion and fall into the arms that he holds out to us. That's all it is. You see, the fact of the matter is that as when God declares his love to us, it demands our hearts, our souls. But it is a beautiful demand, a loving demand, and that life is found in our entrusting ourselves into his love and his care. That's what we celebrate. That's what we declare. And that's what makes the season we're celebrating. It's a great thing for us as we celebrate this love of God, this gift to us of Jesus Christ uh, by coming uh, to uh, his table today. Hear these words of institution from the Gospels. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. And when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Let's uh, uh, do the bold work of confessing our sins to one another and most especially uh, to our Savior. Pray with me. Forgive them all, O Lord, our sins of omission and our sins of commission, the sins of our youth and the sins of our riper years, the sins of our souls and the sins of our bodies, our secret and our more open sins, our sins of ignorance and surprise, and our more deliberate and presumptuous sins. 
the sins we have done to please ourselves, and the sins we have done to please others, the sins we know and remember, and the sins we have forgotten, the sins we have striven to hide from others, and the sins by which we have made others offend you. Forgive them, O Lord, forgive them all for his sake, who died for our sins and rose for our justification, and now stands at your right hand to make intercession for us, Jesus Christ our Lord. Brothers and sisters, hear these words of encouragement. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 